You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Happy to announce to you today, we have a very special guest. You're really going to be blessed. Charlie Campbell is here with us. He is an apologist from ABR Ministries. It is a a, a ministry that is devoted to equipping saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, uh, Charlie's ministry is uh, really profound. He speaks all over the country, travels every Sunday to uh, across the United States, speaking at different churches, even around the world. And I think you'll... um, find his resources really helpful. He's got a, uh, a bunch of resources that will help you defend the faith. If you have uh, family members that are in maybe Mormonism or uh, other uh, uh, you know, religions, you can uh, get information there to help and to learn uh, how, to, how to witness to them, how to talk with them about it. Uh, there's also just great resources for knowing your Bible. I was really uh, taken by a new series he's writing right now called Dakota Knox. Uh, this is a fictional series written for high school age students uh, to help them understand biblical truths through a fictional story of, of, of mystery and intrigue and, and a, a whole series he's writing. And so these are available for you uh, after the service out at the table. Swing by and, and meet Charlie. Uh, Charlie's a member of the church, as I mentioned, uh, a founder of ABR Ministries. His wife, Anastasia, just a, a, a beautiful woman. They have five children. So not only is he prolific in writing, he's also pr- prolific in producing kids, right? Uh, and uh, just a great brother in the Lord. Would you give a big, warm welcome for Charlie Campbell? Thank you. Oh, good morning. morning. Wonderful to be with you all and to open up God's word with you. But uh, yes, for the last year or so, our family's been coming to church here and we are so blessed. Um, I travel around the country. I've heard hundreds of pastors over the years, but you know, Dave is one of the best teachers uh, that I know of. So we're we're very blessed here. And um, what else did you tell me to say? Uh, Just kidding. Hey, um, John chapter 14. Turn with me there if you would in your Bibles. John chapter 14. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. The ushers would be happy to put one there in your hands. Here in John chapter 14. The night the world would never forget had finally arrived. It was the night Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then led away to stand trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pontius Pilate. And then, of course, just a few hours later, he would be put to death on a cross. Knowing all of these things were about to transpire, Jesus gathered his disciples together in a place called the upper room, and he told them about what was about to happen to him. But he also let them know that after his resurrection, a short time later, he would be leaving them 
Well, they had just spent the last three years with him. And of course, that news that Jesus would be leaving then troubled them greatly. But notice what Jesus said to them in John chapter 14, verse 1. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, these are precious, comforting words for those of us who know Jesus. And as we consider them this morning and they're bearing on an important topic, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that you would encourage us in the faith, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would lead us into the truth. Bless this time we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's fair to assume that many of you have a friend, maybe a family member or coworker, who adheres to another religion other than Christianity. We live in a very religious world. A survey done just two years ago by the Pew Research Center found that only 4% of American adults consider themselves to be atheists. Most people believe in some sort of God or higher power. And of course, this isn't just true of the day and age in which we live. Whenever and wherever people have lived, they've been found giving some recognition to a power or powers beyond themselves. As far back in time as anthropologists have been able to discover, religion has existed in every society. From the most primitive society to the most culturally advanced, humans have been found to be worshiping creatures. And so today, on every continent, the world is filled with different religions. Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Baha'i, Scientology, and Islam, just to name a few. Now, one of the popularly held beliefs regarding the different religions of the world today is that all religions basically teach the same thing. George Lucas, in an interview with Time Magazine, said this a while back. He said, I remember when I was 10 years old, I asked my mother, if there's only one God, why are there so many religions? I've been pondering that question ever since, and the conclusion I've come to is that all religions are true, end quote. The great theologian, Madonna. <laughs> she said, I do believe that all paths, all of them, lead to God. It's a shame that we end up having religious wars because so many of the messages are the same. That is what a lot of people believe today. 
Yet when one takes the time to study the religions of the world, you learn that this really is not the case. Yes, there are some superficial similarities, but when you look into the foundational core teachings of the religions, it doesn't take long to discover that many of them are vastly different and that many of them flat out contradict one another on important topics regarding the nature of God, humanity, the problem of evil, the afterlife, and so on. So because that is the case, they certainly cannot all be true. Now, because there are many disagreements between people of different faiths, some have suggested that we need to view all of the religions in the world in light of something known as the ancient Hindu story of the elephant. The ancient Hindu story of the elephant. Perhaps you've heard it. College professors have been sharing it for years. It also seems to crop up in books on world religions and faith, different faiths. If you're unfamiliar with it, here's how it goes. Once upon a time, in a faraway land lived six blind men. One day, the men were told that there was an elephant walking through the village. And so each of the men was led out to the creature where they were encouraged to touch the elephant and describe what they thought about the creature. So the first blind man comes up to the side of the elephant and begins feeling his way around, and they ask him, what do you think an elephant's like? He says, well, it seems to me that an elephant's a lot like a wall. The second blind man comes along, and he grabs a hold of the elephant's ear, and it's flapping back and forth, and he, he comes to a totally different conclusion. He says, well, I think obviously an elephant's much more like a fan. The third blind man comes along and he grabs a hold of the elephant's trunk and it's, you know, wiggling around in his hands. And they say, well, what do you think an elephant's like? And he concludes, elephants are actually much more like snakes. Fourth blind, blind guy comes along and grabs a hold of the elephant's tusk with its pointy tip. And he concludes that an elephant's actually much more like a spear. The fifth blind man wraps his arms around the elephant's leg, and he has a totally different conclusion. He thinks elephants are actually much more like trees and that all the other people are crazy. I mean, obviously, it's much more like a tree. Well, the sixth blind man comes along, and he grabs a hold of the elephant's tail, and he concludes that all the other guys are wrong and that an elephant is obviously much more like a rope. Well, what happens? Well, according to the story... A fight breaks out, and uh, <laughs> apparently it gets pretty ugly. Well, an onlooker to the fight who is not blind and who sees the whole elephant ends the fighting by telling the man that each of them is correct and that the elephant is actually like all of those things, a spear, a, a snake, a, a tree, and so on. And that's the end of the story. What's the point of the story? There's got to be a point to it, right? Well, this story is often used today to illustrate the popular belief that all of the adherents to the world's different religions are all successfully laying hold of the same God. In the parable, the elephant is said to be a picture of God. The blind men in the parable are said to be the people of different faiths who are all convinced they are right, but who really don't know for sure. Those who share this story usually do so hoping that it will persuade your young college student 
to believe that that's the way things really are. All of the spiritual religious people are all just worshiping the same God with a different name. Well, that belief has unfortunately become very popular today. Um, The last survey data I I read from a few years ago said that 70% of religious Americans believe this accurately depicts the way things really are. 70% here in our country. But are there any good reasons to believe this view is actually true? Are there good reasons to believe the elephant parable might describe the way things really are? Well, of course, the answer is no. As popular as this this belief has become today, there are several problems with the elephant parable. I'll quickly highlight three. The first is this. The story doesn't prove anything. The story doesn't prove anything. The story of the elephant is simply a story. It's captivating, it's picturesque, but that's all it is. It's just a parable. There aren't any good reasons or evidence given that it is actually true. So that's the first problem I have with the story. It doesn't prove anything. Problem number two is this. The story self-destructs. The story self-destructs. How so? Well, if humans are blind regarding the truth about God, as the story implies then that would include the unknown human author of the story. If the author is blind, then why would we believe the story he tells? He's just another confused soul taking a, you know, a wild guess at the way things are. So the story self-destructs. That's problem number two. Problem number three is this. God has not left us in the dark regarding who he is. In the parable, the elephant is totally silent and unable to speak to the men. So the men are left to guess what is true about the elephant. But God has spoken. The God who created our mouths is certainly able to communicate himself, and he has. He hasn't left us like blind men to wander around and guess what's true about him. According to the Bible, God has revealed himself to humanity in at least four different ways. If you're a note taker, number one, through and in creation. Through and in creation. Number two, through man's conscience. And I'll be uh, talking more about these shortly. Number three, in and through the canon of scripture, the 66 books making up the Bible, and fourthly, in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And what God has revealed to us has dealt a death blow to the story of the elephant and absolutely demolished this popular notion that all religions are successfully connecting people to God. Jesus, who not only claimed to be God, but proved he was God, by his miracles and resurrection from the dead, assured us that all religions do not lead people into right relationships with God. If you're still open to John chapter 14, the passage we looked at a few minutes ago, notice what Jesus said again there in verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus' words here make it clear that if a person wants to be reconciled to God, he must have a relationship with Jesus. He is the way. The way where? Well, the way to heaven. That's what he was talking about with the disciples. He said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. And Thomas wants to know, like, where are you going? How do we get there? Jesus says, I am the way there. 
You want to go there? You need to come through me. I find it interesting that Christianity was not the word chosen by the disciples to describe the movement they were a part of. The label Christian was actually given to them, the Bible says, by outsiders in the city of Antioch, possibly as a term of derision. The disciples referred to faith in Jesus Christ as the way, the way. They didn't refer to Christianity as a way, some way, my way, the disciples way. The name they chose was the way. That was telling of their familiarity with Jesus's words in John chapter 14, verse six, and their belief in the truth of those words. And of course, this is not the only verse that speaks to this issue. If you're one to write in the margin of your Bible, you might jot down right there in your Bible next to John chapter 14, verse six, a couple of other verse references. And I point this out to you because the last time I quoted John 14, verse six to a lady, she said something. She said, well, you're misinterpreting what Jesus said there. That's not what he's talking about. And I said, well, maybe you could read the verse and break it down for me. Well, she didn't want to. But it brought up an important point with me. It is good for us as Christians to be able to back up what we believe with maybe more than one verse, especially if, if those verses are readily available, because the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. So even if we are maybe wrong about what Jesus was saying there in John 14, 6, we're not, but if we were, we can use the light of God's word elsewhere to shed light and add clarity perhaps to a, another passage. And so Acts chapter 4, verse 12, does that with this verse. And notice what it says. Peter is speaking here in verse 12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And if you look at the context there, the name he's talking about is Jesus. He says there's salvation in no one else. When Peter was rebuked by the powerful Sanhedrin for saying these words, he stood right back up to them a few verses later and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. God give us that kind of boldness when it comes to this topic. How about another verse? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The apostle Paul spoke to this issue. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator, of course, is a person who's able to intervene in a dispute and bring about reconciliation between two parties. And, and bring them back together. Well, according to the Bible, humanity has been separated from God because of our sins. We need a mediator. We need someone who can bring about reconciliation. And thankfully, the Bible says there is a mediator, but only one. The man Christ Jesus. Paul talks to this issue here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. How about another verse? John chapter 3, verse 36. John spoke to this issue in verse 36. He said, he who believes in the son has eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel right there in a nutshell. But notice the bad news. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life. 
He's speaking about everlasting life on the other side of the grave. We know atheists that are living healthy lives. He's speaking about life eternal. If they reject the son, they're not going to see life. Why? He says the wrath of God abides on them. They're still under God's judgment. There's been no forgiveness of sins there because they reject the son. So that's pretty clear. Now, we could go on with more verses, but I, I think you get the point. The Bible is crystal clear on this. If you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to be rescued from spending eternity in hell, if you want to go to heaven, the Bible says you must turn from your sins. It's called repentance. And place your faith in Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible teaches. Now, the critic says, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Charlie, you quote these verses in the Bible, but I don't even believe the Bible. It's an ancient collection of myths and fables. Well, the person who holds this high level of skepticism regarding the Bible, unfortunately, overlooks or has refused to look into it, uh, the fact that there is a wealth of evidence that points to the trustworthiness and reliability of the Bible. I have here in mind things like hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries. The Bible's incredible internal harmony, historical confirmation that we've unearthed in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, different scientific discoveries that have verified dozens of details in the Bible. There was a discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947, which give us the assurance today that we have accurate copies of those ancient books of the Bible. There's the writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century historian who lived in Israel, who worked for the Roman Empire, who wrote a great history of the, the Jewish people. And he verifies dozens of details you've read about in the New Testament. You add all of this together and lots more, and you can build a very strong case as to why the Bible should be taken seriously. If you're unfamiliar with this kind of evidence for the Bible, a couple of my books can quickly bring you up to speed on those, those different lines of evidence. So in light of what the Bible teaches in verses like John chapter 14, verse 6, or Acts chapter 4, verse 12, as Christians, we believe that all other religious systems outside of biblical Christianity are man-made religions that are not leading people into relationships with the true and living God, nor providing a remedy for people's sins. Following the teachings of Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Joseph Smith, or some other religious leader may lead to some changes in a person's life, but it will not lead a person away, or it will only lead a person away from the one and true living God. And notice where Jesus said these other paths lead. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to heaven for all. Destruction, he says, and many are those who enter by it. That, unfortunately, is where man-made religions are leading people. A place of destruction, a place the Bible calls hell. I received an email a while back from a lady who read an article that I had written wherein I discussed some of these things and included this verse in the article, Matthew 7, verse 13. And she said, I can't believe you think this. You are just trying to scare people. That's not very loving. <clears throat> and she had some other things to say. But um, <laughs> I get some interesting emails, as you might imagine, uh, with this ministry. 
But I, I got back to her and uh, I shared a little analogy with her. Imagine a blind woman walking toward the edge of a cliff. You're familiar with the terrain and she's not. And you can see where the woman is heading. And you know there's a 500 foot drop down a jagged rocky cliff. Would it be unloving to warn her about what's coming? No. It would actually be unloving to keep your mouth shut. That's the unloving thing to do. Here's another analogy. There's some beautiful rivers in the world that have signs warning boaters of what will happen if they continue down the river. They're usually pretty big and obnoxious looking. Orange and yellow signs, pull out boats here, danger, waterfall ahead. Now, some people might look at the sign and say, well, how unloving. Some of them would put those signs up here. I mean, they're, just, they're ruining the pristine beauty of this place. They're just trying to spoil our fun. They're just trying to scare people. And if there wasn't a waterfall ahead, then those statements would be true probably. But what if there really was a waterfall? Well, then the park ranger who went to the trouble to put those signs up was doing something very loving, wasn't he? It was out of concern for unaware boaters that the signs are put up. Because if you continue down the river and no one warns you, you're going to have some serious problems. It's, it's going to get ugly. Well, that's why Jesus spoke about hell. Hell actually exists. It's a real place. And because the Lord is not willing, the Bible says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And because God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, Jesus lovingly spoke of hell when he shared the gospel with people. And we can follow that model. But Charlie, though I'm, I'm not religious, I, I'm a good person. Surely the, the Bible doesn't say good people go to hell. Well, actually, the Bible says all have sinned, including you. Isaiah 53, verse 6, again, says all, not most, not some. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. David wrote in Psalm 143, verse 2, that in God's sight, no man living is righteous. We have all broken a variety of God's commandments. Those are the people who deserve to be judged and condemned and to end up in hell. Sinners, people like you and me, before we were forgiven. And those are the people, if they continue to reject God's offer of forgiveness, who will end up there. The choice is up to them. Now, obviously, this message that Jesus is humanity's only savior is not very popular today, is it? Outside of Christian circles. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, well, what you Christians believe totally excludes all the other religions. That's what I don't like about you Christians. You think you're the only ones who are right. Well, in response to this, there are a couple of things that I'd like to point out. Although the gospel message is often labeled by critics as being exclusive, it is actually very inclusive. What do I mean? Well, Jesus told us to take the good news about salvation and God's offer of forgiveness and to share it with the entire world. Luke chapter 24, for example, verse 47, Jesus said, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
So God's offer of salvation, forgiveness of sins, the free gift of everlasting life goes out to the whole world. He doesn't say, hey, take the gospel to Caucasians in North America or, you know, the Arab people in the Middle East. No, he says, take it, start here in Jerusalem, and then I want you to take it to all the nations. You can't get more inclusive and broad than that. The offer is for the whole world. John, the apostle in the book of Revelation, he describes this future scene in heaven, what he sees before the throne of God. And he says that he saw people standing there in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, which no one could count from every nation, not most places, but from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In heaven, we are going to be rubbing shoulders with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are recipients of God's forgiveness and everlasting life. How amazing will that be? So God's offer is very broad. I think it's important to emphasize that to people. Now, having said that, there is another sense in which the gospel is exclusive. How so? Well, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We already established that. That means then that statements to the contrary are wrong. But I think it would be good to point out to people who are critical of Christianity that all truth claims are exclusive. All truth claims are exclusive. For example... Take the simplest truth claim I could think of. One plus one equals two. Can't get any more simple than that, right? So that claim right there, as simple as it is, is totally exclusive. Three is excluded. Four is excluded. Five is excluded. There's only one right answer. When Richard Dawkins and other atheists say there is no God, they are making an exclusive claim insisting that everyone who believes in God is wrong. When Muslims say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, they are claiming that people who believe otherwise are wrong. And the reason why is because all truth claims are exclusive. That is something critics of Christianity often overlook when they try to single you out for your exclusive views. They themselves hold to all kinds of exclusive views. All right, I hear what you're saying. You raise some interesting points, but I still don't understand why a person must put their faith in Jesus in order to be saved. I mean, why did God set it up that way? Why can't, why can't people just believe in some other person or deity in one of these other religions? And that counts. Well, think this through with me just to help you think through it. Let's suppose that you hurt my feelings this morning. Okay. You say something rude or whatever. In fact, let's just take it a step further. Let's suppose you walk up here and um, kick me. Okay, so here's you. <laughs> and uh, there's me. Okay. Now, just, let's just, we're just pretending, right? Don't actually do that. But question for you, in light of what's just happened up here on the stage, would you then be able to go to any person you'd like and apologize to make our relationship right? Obviously, the answer is no. Why not? Well, because to make right our relationship, you would need to return directly to me. You can't go and apologize to Pastor Dave over here and ask for his forgiveness and think that our relationship has been fixed. They're dragging me off to the hospital. 
And uh, you can sing songs to Dave. You can write poems to Dave. You can give money to Dave. You could build a temple for Dave. And it's not going to do anything to fix our relationship, is it? Well, the same is true in our relationship with God. Having sinned against the God of the Bible, we must go back to him in order to have our relationship restored. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that a person must have a relationship with Jesus in order to receive God's forgiveness. Why is that? Because Jesus is God. He's the one you've kicked. He's the one you've sinned against. We can't invent religions and then cry out to man-made deities and hope they'll save us. These other gods don't even exist. They're the inventions of men. They're the figments of people's imaginations and imaginary deities can't do a single thing to help anybody on the day of judgment. They don't even exist. They're not there to do anything. In Jeremiah chapter 11, God spoke of those in ancient times who worshiped these man-made deities. And he said of those persons that they will go and cry to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they, these, these deities will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. They won't save them at all because they can't. They're not even there to do a thing. If you want to be saved, you have to have a relationship with the true and living God who actually is there, who actually exists. The God who's revealed himself to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Well... Hold on a second here. What about those who've never heard of Jesus? Are you saying they're going to be condemned to hell? Well, thankfully, God will have the final say on that matter. But for those who do end up in hell, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that it will never be because they never heard about Jesus. No one's going to end up in hell just because they never heard about Jesus. People are going to end up in hell because they've lived their lives ignoring or even retreating from the truth God has revealed to them. Well, Charlie, uh, some people have never even heard of God. Well, in response to this, we believe that they will still be without excuse on the day of judgment. Why is that? Well, because God has revealed himself to all humanity in and through, number one, creation. I mentioned this earlier. Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter one. Speaking of those who reject God, he said, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to those God-rejecting people because God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, through creation. So that they, those who reject God, are without excuse. All people from the beginning of time, from from Adam and Eve's time all the way to, to our time, have had the testimony of creation to point them to a creator. This is spoken of In Psalm chapter 19 as well, verse 1 through 4, it says, The heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. So the testimony of creation is there. 
to point people to our creator. Another reason why people will be without excuse on the day of judgment is because of God's revelation in and through man's conscience. The Bible says that those who have never had access or exposure to the scriptures, the written law of God, still show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So God has also inscribed evidence of his existence and his moral laws on the conscience of each person. When they violate their conscience, when they engage in sin, they're convicted. They feel guilt over that. And that guilt is by design. It's good because it's, it's there to lead a person back to the, the one they've offended, back to their maker to seek out his mercy and his forgiveness. So all people can know through an examination of creation and their conscience that God exists and that they have failed to live up to his laws written in their hearts. If a person will respond to the truth, God has revealed to him through creation or the convicting work of his conscience, God will give that person additional light about himself. If a person who has never heard of Jesus truly wants to know God, God will allow himself to be found. Why do I believe that? Well, because of verses like Jeremiah 29, verse 13. Notice what God says here. He says, you will seek me and notice the promise and find me. But notice the condition. He does put a condition on it. When you search for me with all your heart. I've bumped into these YouTube atheistic challenges out there on the internet where, um, you know, some atheist YouTube channel will, will have a little video where they're going to test to see if God might uh, prove that he's real. And they hold up a little trinket or something and they say, we're going to give him an opportunity. If he'll stop this little remote control from hitting the floor... We'll, we'll accept that as evidence that he actually exists. And then they drop it and it hits the floor. Well, God must not exist. As though that's some sort of legitimate inquiry. That's not searching to know God with all your heart. But God says, if you really want to know me and you'll cry out to me, I, I will reveal myself to you, David assured his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. He said, if you seek him, Solomon, he will let you find him. One of the reasons why many people today aren't finding God is because they don't want to find him. They're looking for God about as much as a thief is looking for a policeman. Not looking. They realize having a relationship with God will require that they turn their back on their sin. And that's too big of a price, they think. So they, they decline your invitation to come to church. They're not looking. But if they would, the Bible says he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And there are lots of ways God could get the truth about Jesus to someone out there who is seeking to know him. He might send them a missionary he might allow a radio signal to penetrate their part of the world. He could put it on the heart of a Christian to post something on social media. Someone might hand them a gospel track. An angel could appear to them. We, we've read about that in the Bible. He could give the person a dream or a vision that would lead them to know more about the Lord. 
Maybe God would put a friend in their life who would invite them to the mission church on August 13th, 2023. Maybe that's why you're here today. Someone invited you. God is drawing you to himself. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Jesus said in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God loves you. He created you that you might know him and enjoy a relationship with him. And he wants to save you. That's why Jesus died on that cross. The Bible says he died there in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. But he rose from the grave three days later. And today he's offering forgiveness of sins and everlasting life to all who will repent and place their faith in him. If you've never done that, I exhort you today's the day. Stop running. Get right with your maker today. And you can do that. Right here in this place before you walk out of the doors. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you just you call out to the Lord in prayer. And just say, God, save me. I, I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. You, you got to help. You know, uh, you, you say to do this, to call out to you. So you. Just whatever words flow from your heart. You're placing your faith in Jesus. All the work's been done. It's not some magical prayer that you pray. It's just God sees into your heart that you want to have your sins forgiven and you want to have a relationship with Jesus. Don't put that off if you need to do that. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, I encourage you to continue in the faith and don't be ashamed of the gospel. This is news that is too good to keep to ourselves. Let's be in prayer about how we can get it out. Maybe you're too shy to talk to people. Then get some tracks. Hand out tracks. Post something on social media. I think all of us, there's room for us to step up our efforts to get the gospel out to people. So be in prayer about that. Don't be content to just be a silent, secret service Christian. No one knows. You're at work and like... Is he a Mormon, a Muslim? I don't know. I think I saw him pray once. <laughs> Look for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. You know how I often get conversations started with people is I just ask them. I, I, I personally don't feel real comfortable sitting next to someone on the plane and turning to them and saying, can I talk to you about Jesus? <laughs> I mean, you might try that. I mean, maybe you're comfortable doing that, but that freaks people out a lot of times. So I just like to talk to people. What, what do you do for fun? Where have you traveled? Just, just questions about that. You can do that at work with your coworkers. And then you just throw in this conversation tilting question. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? I have found that a lot of people aren't even offended at all. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? And they share whatever their beliefs are. And some of them are like really wacky. But rather than get into apologist mode and start telling them what's wrong about that belief, I just say, well, who's Jesus to you? Who do you think Jesus is? And people, people talk. That might be a good little tip for you. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Mix it into your normal conversations with people and see where the Lord might take it. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. 
To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.